Hello and welcome to Real Talk Intervention, episode number 27, the special education episode. And this is what's so frustrating for me as a teacher is that everything I know about special education is in Texas, so I almost feel like I know nothing. Stephanie, today, today, is it clear? Today is a special, it's a special episode. Is it clear? Um, it's, a, it's an education episode. It's a special, it's a special education episode. Are you trying to be punny? It's a special education episode because it's an episode about special education. Do you remember when you were a kid and you'd have like the special episodes of your favorite TV show where we would learn that drinking and driving is bad or or we would learn that, you know, you should call your parents after school or I don't know. I never watched the special episodes because they were always really cheesy, but I feel like it's really appropriate for the special education episode because in Texas right now, we're having a special episode where we're learning that you can't set a number on the amount of people who have learning disabilities in your state. That's not a predictable situation. Well, it, it, it's not even that it's not so much predictable, Stephanie, but it's not something you can actually control. You oh. can't actually stop people from having learning disabilities. Okay, wait, okay, before we get any further on our special episode, let's take a step back and uh, catch our, uh, our listeners up on what exactly is going on in Texas right now. Because I know a lot of us, I mean, there's a lot of news and there's a lot of Facebook and there's a lot of things going on right now. And so it's understandable if perhaps you know that there's some sort of special education controversy in Texas right now, but you're not 100% sure what it is or how it's all it all ties together. We're here to talk about that today. The special education controversy in Texas. There was a expose in 2016 by the Houston Chronicle, which revealed that Texas Education Agency was setting a quote-unquote enrollment target for the number of special education students that each district could have. 8.5% of their students or fewer were supposed to be how many were in each district for special education services. Maybe maybe we're thinking every district should have 8.5% of their student population be special ed, not more than... Not not less than I I don't I don't no, know definitely where, where less just... than definitely less <laughs> okay. than okay so I I think the idea behind all this is that if you have a really high level of students that need specialized intervention uh, plans or educational plans that possibly the tier one needs to be looked at in that district that possibly it's not addressing the needs of the student I mean as we know through intervention there's not supposed to be that many kids that are struggling in a school. You can also say that, hey, maybe we're not funding this enough and, and the level of support that's needed for some, for some of these IEPs to actually come off is, is unrealistic in the, in the current funding schedules that we have here in Texas. There's a lot of things you could say, but in the end, what we're saying is that we are allowing kids to not be appropriately educated because we have an arbitrary number that we're trying to keep our services below. No matter how you try to defend that, I, I think it's unconscionable, personally. So TA is, is saying that that was not something that they said. 
the districts are kind of taking it upon themselves to interpret yeah. or to misinterpret mm-hmm. uh, directives. So yeah, so they're they're passing the buck down. There's a review going on right now as to who is responsible for why the district cap of 8.5% was there. But I can tell you, and I know Stephanie, you can agree, that this was a thing that existed in yes. Texas education is that's true. This was a number that I was told by a director of special education in another district. That this is a thing is is not surprising to me. Right. That it is now becoming a controversy is is not surprising to me. Yeah. When I started teaching, I was like, oh well, that sounds weird and that's strange. That's interesting. Right? That's okay. interesting. But I'm going to listen to you because you're my boss. As far as this podcast is concerned, you know, we, uh, we're not trying to say that this is not something that Texas did because Texas did. Who did it? I don't know. But obviously, this was something that was at least in more than one district in the state because we're not from Houston. Right. So spoiler alert, our district wasn't Houston ISD. So this is something that Texas definitely was doing. Why we were doing it, maybe not clear. But so let's lay it out very clearly. So someone set a cap. And if a district was hovering at that eight, eight and a half percent range, they are feeling pressured to deny any further testing or identifying any other students. And so students are not getting classified as special ed who could be or would be, or in some of our cases that we can think of personally, definitely were, you know, they're being denied services because the district has too many of these students identified as a special ed. So that's what this cap was was doing if you take it down to like the personal level in the worst case scenario what the cap is doing is it's penalizing districts or making districts feel as if they will be penalized if they get too many special ed students in their in their district so students are being denied services just because of living in the wrong district but i i do want to speak to because i I, stephanie i think one of the differences in in our personalities is that despite the fact of you being much more of an optimist than i am I'm normally more willing to say, well, there were probably good reasons and good intentions that were going on behind this idea. And much as I hate to lay the onus of anything negative on on testing, because I do really appreciate standardized testing and state testing, I do have to say, I think that there is probably some reasonable fear that schools could use special education code, especially at this time, talking about 2016, Mm -hmm. as a way to skirt around how they are underserving their at-risk population. I mean, at that time in particular, we had totally different tests. Now, you know, with the new STAR system, the tests are not as different for the special ed students, but, you know, totally different tests. You can waive requirements for graduation. Which they still can do. Which they still can do. That's true. They still can do, you know, waive the state requirements for special education. All things that I completely and fully support, but I can see how in an environment of extremely high stakes testing where a district might do unethical things in order to keep their funding. There's always going to be people who try to get around a certain rule. If you take away the testing, those same unethical people are in power in that district and will do whatever unethical thing is next on their list. I think when they're doing this, really speaks more to me to the the funding situation than anything. You know, I don't think that anybody has enough money Mm -hmm to do what some students need us to do. Some of these students, they need more than 36 kids in a room with a teacher. 
They need more time, more individualization, and we just don't have the support and the money and the staff to do all of it. I, I think districts kind of just kind of get to the point where they're like, we have limited funds. How are we going to use them? I don't know. I could be no, wrong. I think I totally and completely agree with you. I think it all comes down to funding in the end because it, it all kind of circles around because what's driving the funding, you know, performance, 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 where performance. are we getting the performance? These standardized tests are performance on these standardized tests. If you give a district a way to improve their performance on standardized tests, they're going to go for it. At the time that this sort of target came into came into being, Texas had maybe a higher percentage of students in special ed than other states did. I don't know if this is uh, what maybe made those numbers in Texas go higher. There's a large number of ESL students or ELLs. You're going to have a lot of school districts that don't have either the education or the understanding of how to deal with second language learners. And a lot of times these kids aren't taught to the capacity that they need and they get shuffled off into special education. Times I, I don't know how ubiquitous it's going to be, but it's something that I I've definitely heard anecdotally happening a lot. And that is one of the things that can go wrong with data, right? I mean, when we just start taking arbitrary data points and just start comparing them and we don't consider all the factors that, that are coming into play, you know, you might say, oh, well, Texas has way too many special education students, you know, compared to compared to what? You know, and then you take one particular district and they've got way too many special education students compared to another district. But you can't just say like an arbitrary number and just put that across the board and lay it out for everybody everywhere. My confusion is if the issue is funding, one specific population that has been really hurt in Texas is our dyslexic kids. They're routinely denied special education for their learning disability because Texas considers that a 504. Mm-hmm. So unless there's some co-current situation that's happening with the student, they don't have any sort of protections through an IEP. They have protections through 504, which is going to help with the student's academic needs, but here's the weird thing. Isn't there funding that comes from the federal government for special education? And there's no funding tied to 504. Mm. So I'm not really sure why that was happening. Do you have any insight on that? Because I'm like, I'm so confused by that. Well, that's really actually very interesting. I didn't know that. And that's a good point. State 504 is state funded. No, it's a fi- it's a federal mandate, but it's not funded through anything. And so there, there is no funding. It's just, it's just basically an anti-discrimination kind of situation. Right, right. So there's no actual funding coming in for those students. While there is, there is funding for LEP, there is funding for special ed, but there's no funding for the 504. Right. So special ed is special ed, of course, is is IDEA funding, right? The in, Individual Disabilities right. Education Act. So the IDEA funding has state grant programs and discretionary grant programs. As far as I know. So, the, I mean, the majority of special ed funding, of course, is going to come from the states, but they're, yeah, you're right. That's super interesting. I never thought about that before. What determines a disability? In Texas, I mean, every other state determines that dyslexia is a learning disability. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's always been kind of, it's always flummoxed me that we're, we're like the only state that does this. And this is concerning for me, you know, from my personal point of view. And it's just something that it boggles the mind as to why we wouldn't 
want to have, if there is funding set up for these students, why would we want to deny, especially that special class? Are we, I mean, are we saying that we don't think that dyslexia is real? Well, especially because dyslexics do need so much. So much. Yeah. Now that I'm really getting into it, Sarah, oh my gosh, I, I had no idea how much they actually really need. And of course, also dyslexia doesn't necessarily, like you can be dyslexic, but not have an achievement gap. So you're achieving on your same level. So you're not qualifying for special ed because of that reason. And this is what's so frustrating for me as a teacher is that everything I know about special education is in Texas. So I almost feel like I know nothing at this point because everything I've learned has been the rules and the regulations that have been set out for us. And... Clearly, we're doing it all wrong here, so I don't know if I can even trust my own understanding of this, but from what I understand, the there is going to be, that's one of the things on the dyslexia assessment that we have here in our schools is that there is a gap. There's a gap between the expected performance of the student and the actual performance of the student. That's one of the screening pieces we have for dyslexia. Here's something that might be interesting coming from, um, coming from Learning Disabilities Association of America. Okay. You may not identify a child as having a learning disability if the discrepancy between ability and achievement is primarily the result of a visual, hearing, or motor impairment, mental retardation, emotional disturbance, or environmental, cultural, or economic disadvantage. So you have to have a severe discrepancy between your achievement and your intellectual ability, and you must be not achieving commensurate with your age or ability level. But it cannot be because of visual hearing, motor impairment, mental retardation, emotional disturbance. I thought we did have ED kids in special ed. That's what I'm confused. Yeah, I think so too. I thought so. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like to me, this is almost going to be like a therapy podcast because I really have to understand what exactly I've been taught all these years. I've been a teacher and then I had to come to grips with the fact that all of that was wrong. The state is setting up all of these different plans for how they're going to take this care of this on a state level. But how long is this all going to take to trickle down? One of the things that they accuse this process of doing is specifically using RTI to delay assessments and testing for uh, special education. I mean, we all know this, that the, the RTI is not supposed to be used in a manner where you're like trying to delay any sort of testing, but that is sometimes how right. it ends up being used. Yeah. I mean, how long is it going to take for us on our level? kind of the, just the teachers and the everyday teachers, how long is it going to take for us to relearn and, I guess, deprogram ourselves from what we've been taught for every single year we've been teaching? We also see that our special education populations underachieve, underperform, you know, across the board. They're not getting to where they need to be. They're not doing as well as they as they should be doing. So sometimes, you know, RTI, the real RTI, why RTI actually exists is as a a way to be more effective with working with our students with learning disabilities as opposed to quote unquote just slapping a label on them of of special education and and going from there and going back to the you know the the point of our podcast that kind of goes to why the state might you know put some strictures in line of why you know you shouldn't have such a high population of special education students once again it it can be a way to just put a label on something put it on a shelf and, and not look at it anymore I feel like the moment that we're at right now with special education students, students with disabilities, students with dyslexia, I feel like we're in kind of a civil rights sort of moment with them, you know, where it's like when when we had to desegregate the schools, we had to start integrating. 
the federal government has to come in and put these numbers on things. You have to force it to happen. From a good intentions kind of perspective, I can almost see the state being like, you need to serve these kids. You need to not just shove them in resource math and let it go. Shove them in resource English and let it go. You need to figure out how to serve these kids. That's why we gave you RTI. And so we are going to force you to be more aware and more careful and more precise about who you're putting into this because it's allowing you, I, want to, I don't want to say it like that, but it's giving you the opportunity to let these kids fail. I read this a couple of years ago for a presentation I was putting together and I don't remember the source. But at the time, I think it was three years ago at the time, the source that I read says that 95% of the students that are put into special ed pretty much just languish there and don't ever leave special ed. And I don't know if that was supposed to be the goal. Or, I mean, you don't have to exit it, but I mean, that it exists as a support for you that you need. You know, I, I had a really good friend starting to go down the road of the, you know, the academic supports. For those of us who didn't have academic struggles, it can be very difficult for us watching our children kind of start to go down that road. And especially when it starts having, you know, happening young and there can be that idea of this, they need to work harder, you know, they need to do this or that. They just they I don't want to get them to be lazy. I don't want them to be, you know, feeling like they can't do things. Everybody has accommodations and modifications that they utilize in their life, you know? So to think about special ed as being something like we get into and then we exit, or thinking about RTI as being something we get into and then we exit. No, the point is teaching us or teaching our children how to accommodate and modify for themselves so that when they become adults, they are able to actually do these accommodations and modifications for themselves. The example that I gave is, you know for yourself what you need to do. Like you need to get a notebook out and write everything down. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. You know you need to get your planner and write down the times. You know you need to color code, post-it notes. Whatever it is that you do, that's an accommodation that you make for yourself. And believe me, people modify for you all the time. You think they don't, but they do. We're all modifying people, for you, Sarah. People see you coming and they're like, oh boy. Wait, are you talking about the collective view or are you pointing at me? Let's just call it the collective, all right? Uh. Let's just, let's not go down this road and call it the collective. What, what I'm actually kind of looking forward to is watching Texas try to stomach the federal government coming in and telling them what to do. This is going to be fun to watch. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if anybody listens to our podcast outside of Texas, but if you're in Texas, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't like outsiders telling us how to run our business down here. Everybody does something totally different and Texas down here like, nah, we're gonna we're gonna reinvent this wheel and it's gonna be Texas style wheel, like a big star wheel, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny when you think about about teachers how important it is to us that we do our own thing like why you can't hand a teacher a curriculum or hand a teacher a program because <laughs> it can be the best program it can be the best curriculum but they're not going to want to do it unless they put their stamp on it and I was kind of thinking that is maybe just like a human thing I think it's a Texas thing maybe it's a Texas thing I'm definitely like that thing. I mean I, I, my, I've been teaching this AP class this year they handed me a whole class I could have been doing so much less work this year but nope 
This isn't good enough. Reinvent that <laughs> wheel, baby. This is my special ed department. <laughs> this is my way. This is my class. <laughs> I don't care. You taught this class for 20 years. I went to professional development this summer. I got this. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, a lot of this bothers me, but here's the thing that I think that bothers me the most is that that what after reading that Houston article, they're talking about how these these policies have driven parents, families out of public schools. It, it's this is our responsibility. I mean, if we're gonna say that we're gonna be a nation that educates all students, we have to educate all. They've said that a lot of these special ed services have been used to almost attract kids of, of different races. They've been used uh, disproportionately against people of lower income. It comes back to the same problem of we're not allowing our kids upward mobility that we're supposed to be famous for in America, right? The American dream that you can start at the bottom and work your way up to the top if you work hard. It's an equity issue because, I mean, who can afford private education? And I'm sure there are amazing private education institutes out there. And I think if this podcast is about anything, Stephanie, I think this podcast is about all the things that you hate in education and in, in, in the world, maybe. All the things that you hate are people trying to fix these issues and just creating more problems. <laughs> no system is ever going to work for everybody. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's hard when you hear the one child that gets denied special education services, right? Because of, of this cap. That's hard and that's wrong. And that just fires us all up. Just like it's hard to hear that one student who doesn't graduate because of STAR or that one you know, third grader who's crying before the test. And those personal anecdotes are, are difficult to hear. But there are large systemic reasons and problems that have created the system that is causing those personal stories. Well, whatever knowledge we have is completely false, apparently, too. I mean... Yeah. It all ties together. So just between you and me, I know we sounded really knowledgeable, but we're actually not. And we would love to hear from some of our teachers and diagnosticians and parents that are involved in this and have some insider knowledge or have anything to share. If you could comment on our Facebook post or leave us a blog or send us an email, we'd really appreciate it. And, you know, we'd love to have you on the show to talk more about this issue. This is something that's very near and dear to our hearts. If you want to come on and be a guest or if you'd like to leave us a voice recording, you can do that and we'll play that for you. Till then, I hope to hear from you soon. Thank you for tuning in. We are um, on Facebook, Real Talk Intervention. We're tweeting on Twitter at Intervene Number Four Real. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. We are there, or just follow us on the blog, realtalkintervention.blogspot.com. Lots of great ways for you to get in touch with us. All right, thanks for joining us. Oh, I've got to tell you this story. Like, all week long, I've been telling people, something stinks over by my room. It smells like a dead body. And they're, like, kind of looking at me weird. Like, I don't smell anything. Whatever. But the other lady who works in the library was smelling it, too. And I didn't know that she was smelling it, too, because I didn't ever talk to her about it. So she told me today, she was like, did you smell anything weird over there by your room? And I was like, it smells like poop over there. What is that? I can't, I can't figure it out. She says, I figured out, it's been, I've been smelling it all week, and I found it. Somebody stuck a container of milk behind the bookshelves over there. 
Oh, my god! And it's just been sitting there rotting. And I was like, so gross. And you know what she told me? She goes, I feel bad. I've, I've been thinking and I've been kind of saying to people that I thought it was you. Oh, my God. I was like, WTF, man. What did what? I ever do to you to think oh it smelled god. like rotten poop? <laughs> Tried okay, that is hilarious. I thought you would like that. I thought you would. <laughs> I was like, hey, Red. No, it's not me. It's I'm not the rotten milk in the library. <laughs>